continuing in our series on the church, and we are talking about the purpose of the church, pop quiz, do this, we've been doing this for a while, so hopefully someone's going to pass, make the teacher feel better. What's the purpose of the church? There's some lesson handouts there if you'd like to follow along. Okay, there's one, exalt the Lord. Evangelism. Evangelism. That's 66%. Equip the saints. All right, so we said there's three purposes of the church all under one umbrella. The main umbrella is we want to glorify God, and under that umbrella, we want to exalt God. Talked about that. We want to edify one another. Spent some weeks on that. Now we're on the second week of evangelism. And last week, we saw that a follower of Christ could understand his role in regards to evangelism by Paul's three terms he uses for himself. We looked at 1 Corinthians 4.1, where Paul said he was a steward. And what did we say a steward is? Yeah, so that meant that Paul and we should be faithful to the content of God's message, that we don't get to alter it or change it as we think would be best for our culture or our times. We proclaim his message. The second term we saw was 1 Timothy 2, where Paul said he was a herald. Do you remember what we drew out from that? Spokesman. Okay, spokesman. And what type of herald would you want to have for you? Joyful. Yeah, joyful one. You know, we don't just say the content of God's word. We're excited about it. It's joyful news that we get to share with other people. And the third term was 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors. And so there we emphasize, as Paul did, urgency in our call. And then we kind of summarize evangelism by saying, evangelism is telling the gospel of Jesus with the aim of proper response. We then quickly gave eight things evangelism is not. It's not a sales pitch. It's not coercion. It's not closed-minded. It's not having someone be converted, though we aim for it. It's not a specific approach. It's not merely sharing your personal testimony, not merely apologetics, and not merely helping the poor, doing good works, or charity. Those are good, those are good things. And then we talked about how every believer is a witness. Not that we should be a witness, though that's true, um, but we are. It's a declaration. You are my witnesses. And we can either be a light that people are drawn to, or we can be an example that people don't want to be a part of. Um, and then all of that is flowing from lives that should be changed. First Peter 3.15, we talked about how they should be asking us about the hope that's within us. And then lastly, we ended by saying the goal here is not to feel guilty because we haven't evangelized, but we want to love people. But all that leads to, okay, how do we do this? So... We're going to look on the front of your page on how do we, plural, people, first singular, plural, how do we evangelize, and then how do I individually evangelize. So, first, how do we evangelize? And really what I want to say is we do that by having the gospel, the good news of Jesus, be the center of our lives here when we gather together. That our songs, our sermons, our teaching all flow from the gospel. You know, our understanding of Scripture is that all of it is pointing to Jesus. And that always is calling for a response. So we don't need to tack on or add in the middle of the service some kind of evangelistic appeal. Every sermon is talking about Jesus. So every sermon is calling for a response. And as people want to join our church, what's the requirement? Well, not that they hold to a certain form of theology or not that they have had a certain type of lifestyle. How do they respond to the gospel? That's what... 
being a part of us is, is do they understand the gospel? It's the center and want to follow it, the center of our lives. Um, and so, along with being clear on the message, we should realize, as Paul says in Titus 2.10, that we want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. A beautiful necklace can help adorn a woman. Yet, unwashed clothes, unkempt clothes can make someone go, The way we lead our lives as a community of believers can be a witness that it either makes people want to know more about why we're gathering, which is about a person, not us, or can make them want to know less. And so that's kind of a long introduction to get to the four things. The first, you can see on your page, how do we evangelize? The church makes the gospel visible through welcoming love. You can summarize the gospel in four words. God, man, Christ response. God created us. We, man, were in his image, but we rebelled. Christ came to deliver us, and then we respond by faith and trust. But the point there is that after sin, God made a way for people to come to us. He welcomes with open arms all who repent and turn to come to him. And the church makes this visible by having the same approach. Probably all familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. And in that, we see two responses to sinners. What is the response of the father to the son? To the son who, the prodigal son. Thank you. What did you say, Corbin? I said forgiveness. And not just forgiveness. What was the father? Blessing. And blessing. But even prior to both of those things, what did the father do? Welcome. Yeah, he ran to him. He was excited for his son to come. He wasn't like, well, okay, remember the son came and he was going to say, I'll be your servant. You know, basically just let me have food. And the father ran out to meet him. And that should be our response. When sinners, which is us too, but new sinners come in, we should be excited that they come, not go, uh, okay, well, we'll say hi a few seats over, but we really don't want to engage with you. I was at a prior church and I think it was later on in the week and the janitor came up to me and she said do you know what everyone was talking about this week i said no what were they talking about and she went on to tell me how these two girls who i knew who she was talking about they'd come and they had coffee in the service it's a pretty big sin and all the old people had been in a big titter all week because they had sat there and drank coffee in the sanctuary now next week the girls didn't come and so I asked the janitor, I said, well, was anyone talking about that? She said, no. And so I tried to push on her. You know, this isn't, isn't this a little sad that we're more upset that they're drinking coffee in our service than the fact that they didn't come back? You know, they, they weren't excited that two girls, they were very clearly, I mean, I know them, so I'm not saying by the outside you can tell someone's character, but they were very clearly not Christians. It's from my interactions with them. And everyone was up, not upset that they didn't come back. They're upset that they brought coffee into our little sanctuary. Um, Now what, I mean, obviously that's not portraying welcoming love. That's a, you got to be perfect, even in these little weird things like knowing that you don't bring coffee in the sanctuary, which you can here, but nonetheless. uh, You know, that's not this welcoming, hey, we're so glad you're here. You may look different. You may smell different. You may act different. You may not know any of the hidden clues in a culture that people pick up over time, but that doesn't matter. You here because you want to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and make it known, so we're excited for you to be here with us. And we see 
maybe the analogy of the group I gave, through the other person in the parable, parable of the prodigal son, and that's the older brother. How does the older brother respond when the son comes home? Well, you killed the fatted calf for him. Yeah. When have you ever done that to me? So, yeah, he's, well, let's describe that. What is his basic feeling towards him? Jealousy. Jealousy. Resentment, anger, entitlement. entitlement. And that's basically what I kind of shared. And sadly, as churches, we can subtly have this mentality. So how do we make the gospel visible? Well, something as simple as being welcoming to all types of sinners. And through that, we can make clear how God responds to sinners. Um, turn to James chapter 2, verses 1, and we're going to stop in the middle of 6 because it kind of transitions there. The verses are not original, so. Chris, could you, verse numbers are not original. <laughs> the verses are. Uh, Chris, could you read that for us? James chapter 2, 1 through, you'll kind of see where to stop in the middle of 6. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For every man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and says, and say, you sit here in a good place, why do you say to the poor man, you stand over there or stand at my feet? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor, but you have dishonored the poor man. Yeah, so here, now clearly this is not necessarily them not wanting people to come, but they're having varied responses based on something that doesn't matter. The gospel shows us that no matter who comes in, rich or poor, white or black, same political view, different political view, we welcome them in the name of Christ. And yet churches, we all have a tendency to become insular, to become cliquish, where you have to kind of earn your way into being really part of the body. Um, and yet, we're being reminded in the prodigal son, the story that everyone who comes through Christ should be welcome. And if they aren't genuinely welcomed and they don't see the full reality of the gospel in our church's life, all right, so reflecting on this, what does cause us to not genuinely reach out to others? Because we all are tempted not to do that, to keep up some safeguards. Okay. Want a private life? Okay, yeah, it cost us something. Those are the big sins that they got. Uh, what might be other reasons that we are not genuinely reaching, reaching out? Insecurity about what you may say or, or what you should say or how you approach it. Okay. Yeah. You know, fear, danger. You want to say something else? I was just thinking about the awkward things I said to people. <laughs> <laughs> I think I say more awkward stuff. You agree. <laughs> it was obvious. <laughs> All right, well, you know, here we need to remember 
And we are representatives. We're the hands and feet of Christ. And so as we welcome people or as we don't welcome them, we're showing as a church through our actions what is the gospel like. So let's look at the second one. The church makes the gospel visible through caring love. Right, last week, we referred to Matthew 5.13, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, you're a city set on a hill, salt of the earth. And we said there that the you is, more than Danny, plural. So when it says you are a city set on a hill, it doesn't mean you singular, though that is true too. But you plural are a city set on a hill. You plural are the salt of the earth. And that means as a group, we should be, what does salt do? It's preservative. It's an enjoyment. But sadly, churches, we can retreat from the culture. Ooh, it's so bad. It's so dangerous. They're going to harm us so much that they can't see us or they can't taste us if that doesn't seem too weird of an analogy there but nonetheless we are to be in the world but not of it so that they can see a counterculture something that's different you know one way we see that is that we care for one another god tells us that he is near with the brokenhearted tells us that he keeps our tears in a bottle and so when we genuinely care about others, when we rejoice in what they rejoice in, when we weep with them when they weep, people get to see the care of God, the care of the gospel through us. Now, this doesn't happen automatically. You know, we, when we moved here two years ago, we had to develop relationships. We don't know what makes you sad. We don't make makes you joyful. And so we have to do things like spend time with one another. We have to... Be purposeful to engage in relationships. Uh, this may mean at times we have to do things that we don't really like because we want to get to know them. Now, we do this in other parts of our life. I mean, I've played lots of games with my children that I would never play with my wife. You know, we don't break out high ho Cheerio when they go to bed. Um, you know, it's, it's not that fun a game, but I want to be with my kids. So, hey, I'll play high ho Cheerio. And as a body... I love you, so maybe I'll go to that event that I would never go to on my own but because I want to be with you because you're part of my brothers and sisters of Christ, and I'll do it. Um, and so when we genuinely love and care for those around us, I think we're providing a light that makes someone wonder, why would you love people who are different than you? Why would you care for them when they're obviously so distinct from who you are? And then, you know, that's, I don't know about you, but I pray at times that our church would be diverse that we would have different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, that it would not be apparent why we gather together. Oh, well, you're all basically fit within the same class. Of course, no. The gospel allows rich and poor, black and white, to join together and care for one another. All right, so what are some practical ways that we can show care for the other people in our body or even beyond that? This is don't have to be anything earth-shattering, just basic things that we have to remind ourselves of. Okay. Yeah, those are some very tangible ways. I was thinking of... <clears throat> Saturday with the Clifton's and that tree comes down and go and help them out and when I came out of course I didn't have a chainsaw but I had two arms to move things you know just 
doing what we can for people that may not have the means to get something as maybe not as simple as getting a tree. <laughs> Take a while with three little kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so even very physical, tangible things, helping people when they're in need. Uh, we could reflect more on that, but we have some more things to say. The church makes the gospel visible through sacrificial love. Well-known verse, Sarah, could you read for us Acts 4, or verses Acts 4, 32 through 37? So here, we see this sacrificial love. Now, as I've noted before, we quickly point out, oh, they didn't have to. Well, that's the point. They didn't have to. You know, if I, no one says, wow, you're so sacrificial to pay your taxes. I have to. They, maybe not directly, but eventually come with a gun and say, you'll pay or you'll go to jail or do something else. That's not loving. It's something I'm forced to do. But if I give money if I give my possessions when I don't have to that's love and here we see in Acts that the gospel so overwhelmed them that they willingly sacrificed for those in their community you know God's love was not just an emotional feeling rather it was demonstrated in the sacrifice of their very possessions and again that's representative because what did God do for us the gospel God sent his son to be a sacrifice for us. He didn't just say, I love you. That's a warm fuzzy. It had actions to it. It meant him sacrificing himself. And so we can make the gospel visible when we tangibly and practically sacrifice for those in our church and community around us. You know, we can sacrifice for our family. That's good. But unbelievers sacrifice for their family. But what about when we do that for people who aren't in our family. I think that is saying something about our love for God and God's love for us. So, what are things, just to make this practical again, what are things we can sacrifice for others? Our time. Okay. Yeah. You know, we've uh, had more free time than any culture, and yet we're so stingy with it. Someone, did you say time as well, Arnold? Mm -hmm. Okay. Do people have a hard time thinking the gospel is really real? Okay, why is that? <clears throat> I think one of the reasons is the hypocrisy in the church. Going back to the illustration you had about the two girls with the garden, 
you know, people would be upset over simple things as, oh, you brought these girls brought coffee to church, and then they come back next weekend. Nobody raised an eyebrow on that. And then they hear about, oh, God is love, God is love, we love you, and they're treated like dirt from the church. And that's part of the reason why some people would say, you hear the gospel presentation that God's so loved, but yet his people stink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that gets to the next one, which might be the most controversial. We'll see. The church makes the gospel visible through disciplining love. So turn over a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 9 13. So just to paint the context here, there's a man who is living with, or not just living with, intimately involved with his dad, his stepmom. And the church is not doing anything about it. In fact, they're kind of boasting about it. We're free in Christ. And yet Paul responds to this. Actually, Corbin, could you read this? And could you read from verse 6 to verse 13? Sure. <clears throat> Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral, immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral, of the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have, you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so in a few weeks we'll have a whole lesson on church discipline uh, so I'm not going to dive into everything here. But remember, the gospel is God, man, Christ's response. So how do we respond? Well, it's not just that we affirm something, though that's true. It's that our lives are changed. There's faith and repentance. And when the church allows someone to continue in unrepentant sin, and that's important, my emphasis, unrepentant. You know, we're all going to sin. We're all going to continue to struggle. You know, we're not saying anyone's going to be perfect. But when there's this... I'm sinning and I have no desire and I'm not even trying to change. And when the church allows that to happen, then what are we communicating? Well, then we're communicating that you can be a believer and sin doesn't matter. We are witnessing that God doesn't really care about sin in the life of a believer, except here we see through Paul, we're to remove the unrepentant sinner. You know, contrary to popular thinking, it even says in here in verse 13, sorry, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? You know, we are to judge one another. Now, the church has often mixed this up. We're often judging the world and not inside, and that's the problem. But we are called to hold one another as believers in our community accountable, that we're not living lives that say, well, sin doesn't matter. Now, again, that doesn't mean we're going around being junior Holy Spirits, trying to convict everyone of their sin. You know, we're not hunting. This is not uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, Scarlet Letter, 
We're not trying to punish someone if they repent. That's all we want. We don't shame them. But our desire is to see them living a faithful response to the gospel. And this, I think, is important to the witness of the gospel because this has happened numerous times in our culture where someone will be brought to a church and as they come in, they go, I know what that person over there is like in the community. And they're here and they're like a good member in this church. Well, that's, as Krista said, hypocrisy. And because our churches in the U.S., have no desire to discipline, we have given this witness that, you know what, becoming a Christian is just saying a prayer or walking an aisle, and then you're good. And yet the gospel shows us that there should be a lifelong response, not just an immediate response. And so this, I believe, is another way the New Testament teaches us to love one another and to make the gospel visible. Now, you may have noticed all the things we do, I believe, to be a witness are not so much events. They're not opposed to events. They're not programs, though programs aren't bad. They're not slick advertisements, though it's not necessarily wrong to use advertisements. The attraction of the gospel is changed lives. Lives that look radically different. So, let's reflect on this one, though. Why is it actually loving to gently and humbly confront someone with their sin rather than not saying anything at all. And sharing uh, knowing from someone that had a drug addiction, if they didn't say anything, you know, that could leave them past past destruction because the person that um, was uh, was on drug abuse, if no one said anything to the church about his issue, he would either kill himself or kill someone else or end up in prison. Okay. But thankfully the church lovingly came to him and said he repented this and when he refused, he was put on discipline and then somehow that clicked in his mind. The church is telling me something's wrong and I need to get, I need to get right, I need to get help. Okay, so for this person was kind of a wake-up call. This is a serious issue. God cares. Uh, why is it loving to confront someone on sin? I'm assuming the right manner. You can always do this in the wrong manner. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it ties to what you said earlier that often we care more about what are they going to think of me than do I actually love them. You know, if we saw, and we can take the big one, drugs, if we saw a friend starting to dabble with drugs, most of us would say, you can't stop. That's going to hurt you. You know, it may seem fun, but somehow when it's spiritual things, oh, well, we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be self-righteous. And we shouldn't be those things in the worst sense. But if we love them, just we care about them physically, we should care spiritually. You're beginning to pursue something that's going to harm you long term. Now, can't they just leave and go to another church, though? I mean, cause we, I mean, let's just be honest. There's probably, if there's 100 churches, 
maybe two or three practice church disciplines. I mean, it's not a very common thing anymore. I mean, aren't they just going to go to one of the 97 or 98 that aren't going to care, that are just happy to have someone else there? They can, but when you do confront somebody, they have that in their mind already. Okay. And they're left with it. All right. All right. It's also not a problem if they choose to leave. Our duty is just to confront them. And if they choose to turn around, then fantastic. We continue to have a relationship here at church. But if they don't, then we're supposed to kick them out. I was going to say, and unfortunately this one gets close to home for me, is when someone, someone who's had, I'm going to go back to the drug issue because this one was a personal story, where someone on church staff was confronted by a drug problem, but then he resigned from his church position, went to some, went to another church with the drug problem still going on, and it wasn't the illegal stuff; it was prescription drugs. And then the church that he came from didn't say to his new church, "He's got a problem." They were quiet about it, and because they were quiet about it, the sin got worse. Yeah, so not being loving spilled over to other things. And they could go to other churches, but as Corbin said, on some level, that's not, I mean, we can't help that. We're called to be faithful where we are and not necessarily concern ourselves with what happens afterwards. We hope they don't. We hope that, again, the goal is restoration. The goal is never to shame someone. The goal is never to punish them. The goal is always to bring them back into relationship with the church body and with God himself. Um, now, the point of all that is not to go, whew, okay, well, the church, the way we do evangelism is we just be a good church, so I don't need to talk to anyone. That's wonderful. Whew. No, we should be praying personally that God would give us opportunities. We should be eager to share the good news. Um, and so let's turn to that, how do I evangelize? We're going to focus mainly on one passage, Colossians chapter 4. So if you could turn there, Colossians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 2 through 6, because verse 1 wraps up the last section. Tracy, would you read that for us, please? 2 through 6? Yes, ma'am. Right, so here, first, verses 2 through 4, it talks about praying for opportunities in clear speech. You know, Paul tells them, continue steadfastly, being persistent in prayer. And they are to pray with, it tells us, thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, a door can be both physical and spiritual. I mean, 
That could be literally, they won't open your door, their door, because they know you're a believer. But it also can be spiritual. They might be there in front of you, but they're not really opening up, as we say, their lives. And so we should be praying for a spiritual opening into their lives to speak. Um, and why does Paul want this? So he can declare the mystery of Christ. You know, here in Colossians, one of the big things he's trying to get across is not just for Jews, but for everyone, that the gospel is for all people, that Christ saves all types of people, not just people like you and me. And Paul believed this so much that he says he's in prison. He's in prison because he believes this message. And I find this encouraging and a little challenging in verse 4, that I may make it clear. Now, if the Apostle Paul says, pray for me that I can be clear when I talk, well, then that can be a little encouraging because sometimes it feels like what's up here doesn't always make it in any kind of rational sense to where you are. And you may feel that way too. I have these ideas in my head and then I start to talk and I don't even know what I'm saying. And they, I know they don't know what I'm saying. And so be encouraged though. You're not the only person. Even one of the clearest writers in the New Testament, Paul, needed us, needed people then to pray for him. Pray, God, would you help me when that door opens up, when I get to speak, that I could speak in a way that is understandable, that they don't go, what did they talk? I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. That we would be clear with our speech, that what we say wouldn't be a hindrance to the gospel. Now, two self-reflective questions, and then a question for us to answer. Are you praying for the gospel? You know, are you praying these type of things for our church, for one another, that people would have doors for the word, that people would have boldness when it comes, that people would have clarity? You know, what are you praying for? And then this is practical that we can't answer unless you want to answer that. I'm not trying to turn this into a confessional. But what are some practical ways we can grow in prayer? Because prayer is very challenging. What are practical ways to be more faithful in our prayer? Okay, sometimes you just just do well, it. I mean, sometimes we'll, people will share something like us and we'll say, well, I'll pray for you, but do you stop and pray for them right then? Or do you go about your business and forget you ever told them that you would pray for them? I, would, I was convicted about that a number of years ago and so I tried to, I, if I'm going to say that to someone, then I try to stop right then and go to God for them and pray because otherwise life takes over and they can never talk to them. Okay, yeah. I've found that also helpful. Just to even pray with them. Hey, can I pray for you right now? Rather than next time I see them as I'm walking up, dear oh, Lord, remember that thing that they said to pray for? I prayed for you. <laughs> Whew, snuck that one in. Uh, so what are some other? <laughs> Come on, you've done it too, Corbin. <laughs> okay. Well, you're not as bad as I am. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, purposeful time because there's a lot of things that seem more pressing than prayer so if you don't set carve a time out when you're going to it's probably not going to happen on a practical way uh, it's praying over what you read in the bible you know like this passage right here from the Bible, you know um, you know steadfastly in prayer that'd be great prayer saying lord help me 
to do the duty of appropriate prayer and do it as Paul said continually, not just in here, but also in First Thessalonians, to pray, pray without ceasing. And um, that's just some one way is just taking what we've read and like, Lord, help me apply this verse. Now I know every verse of the Bible is about, you know, like but animal sacrifices like <laughs> okay, uh, not sacrificing animals, but hopefully that helps us with mindset points us to Jesus so that could be turned into a worship moment where Yeah, take what you read and then pray over it. A few things that have been helpful for me, and I'm not trying to be a salesman here, but committing to gather with others to pray. And we do it every Wednesday. You know, prayer is an important part, so I'm going to commit Wednesday night. I'm going to be there. I might kind of have to be too. But nonetheless, if I, even when I wasn't uh, paid, you know, I'm prone not to make this a priority, but if I gather with other people and then they kind of expect me to be there, well, then there's this, hey, where were you? Okay, they're calling me. Hey, let's, let's get together and pray. Uh, some other things that have been helpful is, I, I like list. I'll admit it. My list confession. But I will forget things to pray for, so I've split up the people in the church into the days that I work, and so I can pray for every person in the church every week. Why? I, if I just said, I'm going to go pray for people, I'd forget who. So, on, we'll just say Monday, I pray for who are the... Let's see, normally the Cliftons, Philip Coleman, the Everett's, and the Garibaldi's. If you go through alphabetical, that's about a fourth of our church. And then Tuesday, I take the next four families and I pray for them. Why? Because otherwise I'd forget. And I'd get to the end of the week, or I didn't pray for anyone, or I just remembered some big highlights. No, that doesn't mean you have to do that, but writing down, these are the things I want to pray for, and then wherever you read or whatever, then that reminds you, oh, I need to pray for this because we tend to uh, God bless people and this day and uh, <laughs> and yeah, save everyone. So making some things like that can be helpful. But the next thing Paul says is that we should walk wisely and talk graciously. Verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. All right. He has said in this book in Colossians that they should always live wisely. That's in chapter 1, verse 10. But especially around those outside the church. And the result of walking wisely is that they make the best use of the time. Paul uses the same phrase in Ephesians chapter 5 where he says, redeem the time. Literally, buy it up. You know, one application of walking wisely is then given, and that is, let your speech be gracious. And in it, he says, let your speech always be gracious. And I think that's a challenge because if we're honest, sometimes we have this mentality that, yes, I talk this way at church or with believers, but when I'm in the real world, sometimes you really got to, I mean, you just got to let people have it. Or sometimes with children, you definitely need to let them have it. Um, now, I'm not saying you can't be firm. God is firm at times. But in that firmness, there should be an aura of grace. Always let your speech be with grace. You know, one person asked, I'm not sure who, could you finish what you just said to that person and share the gospel? You know, would the gospel make any sense based on the manner in which you just talked to them? Now we're talking about evangelism, very popular verse in this regard. It's 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16. We've quoted it a few times already. But in that, he says, when they ask you about the hope within you, he says, respond with 
gentleness. You know, we're, that is becoming more and more of a challenge in our culture. We want to just let people have it. They share their view, whether personally or online, and we just we want a full vent respond. But we should have a tenor a manner of gentleness in our response as well. It says in verse 6, seasoned with salt. We already looked at that image earlier, but here, you know, our speech should purify. That's what salt does. As we're around, speech should be purifying. You've probably seen that happen where people will start to share a conversation or say something, and then they'll look at you and go, oh, well, I don't want to say that around them. You know, our lives can be purifying. Or, I think, salt is enjoyable. I like to sprinkle a little on my food, on my omelet this morning. Oh, so good. <laughs> a little salt brought it out. Our speech with others should add to the conversation. Christians shouldn't be dull. You know, we should bring something enjoyable to the conversation that people want to know more. And then he ends, so that the purpose you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think that's important. We answer each person a little different. We don't have some rote. We don't go into robot mode when talking to people. What is your issue? How do I respond to you? Now, we have the same truth, the gospel, but... We apply it to each person personally. And so we have to put in the hard work of getting to know them and loving them. All right, so a few questions. The statement has been made, your life may be the only Bible a person ever reads. What do you think of that? There's, I, I could say there's some bad of that. There's some good. So what do you think of the statement, your life may be the only Bible a person ever reads? I think the bad part is it puts so much pressure on us because, okay. you know, what if we accidentally slip up? You know, we stub our toe and a colorful metaphor comes out of our mouth. <laughs> okay, so you can overly put, like, we got to be perfect, and that's a good, yeah. What are some other ways that might be a helpful or unhelpful statement? We may say you shouldn't, but that's the reality that we often judge a whole group by the few individuals that we have interacted with. Are you going to have one bad waiter at a restaurant? Oh, that restaurant's horrible. Well, maybe you just got the one bad waiter there. Um, and we tend to do that. So that's true of our faith as well. Um, now, I wanted to end with a few more applications of this. Uh, the next one is motivated, equipped, available. There's a man named Max Stiles. He's written a book on evangelism. And in it he writes, well, let me back up. So he, he asks three questions. In our evangelism, are we motivated? Are we equipped? Are we available? And he writes, one might have flocks of non-Christian friends and be motivated to share, but feel shaky about the gospel message. On the other hand, one might be adept at the ins and outs of the gospel but not know any non-Christians. Or one might know the gospel and many unbelievers, but be dull to the spiritual reality of the eternal judgment that those friends without Christ are facing. And I think his questions are helpful because some of us are extremely equipped. Oh, we got answers. We got more answers than our questions out there. We know how to answer every attack on the Christian faith. 
we're equipped, but we're not really that available. All of our friends are Christians. All of our time is already occupied. Other people, as he says, they got tons of non-Christian friends, but they wouldn't have the first thing to know how to respond if they brought up some challenges. They're motivated. Maybe we have friends. Maybe we have the answers, but we just don't care. So I want to walk through a scenario. This is not my own. It's from a book called Gospel Center Church by two men. So imagine we, and some of you just joined us once, so this is going to be a word. But imagine we're part of a church plant in Spain. We're all going to move, move to Spain. We're going to start a church plant. What, what, what criteria would you or we use to decide where to live? Okay. All right. So Spain, there's not very many churches. So let's just, more broadly than that. So maybe where there's people. <laughs> it's pretty unreached, sadly. Uh, would there be any? Okay. How would you approach, unless this, we're assuming some of us are going to work, how would you approach your employment? Well, as a church plant, you would have your support. We're assuming some people would work. For the sake of the discussion. In the community. Yes, okay, but that, once we have our visa requirement <laughs> taken care of. <laughs> okay, but we're just for argument's sake, what would be some requirements for the work you would try and pick? Something you're skilled at doing. Okay, something you're skilled at. That would be a good requirement. Okay, you would disperse yourself some. Okay, yeah, you'd probably try and pick work that you're engaging people because you're there to for a church plant. All right, what standard of living would you expect as part of a missionary church plant group? Affordable. Okay, affordable. <laughs> yes, Spain's expensive. Okay, you. Yeah. All right. But you wouldn't be going there with the idea that, hey, this is my career. I got to keep climbing the ladder. Um, those wouldn't be your goals. What would you spend your free time doing? Yeah, and you can't say you're enjoying all the Spanish food. <laughs> Traveling Europe. <laughs> Getting to know people. <laughs> Getting to know them with all the great food. Not doing the running bowls. <laughs> All right, what opportunities would you be looking for just day to day? Girlfriendships. Okay. What would your what would our prayers be like? Okay. Yeah, plus four. What would you be trying to do with your new friends? Yeah, but being a friend first, like you said. Yeah. All right, what kind of team would you want around you? Or would we personalize it? 
So we're going as a church planting team. All of us are going. Your bags are packed, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, I think this helpful example, maybe you don't, but they say, and I think it's true, you know, when we plant ourselves mentally in a different culture as missionaries, then we think in different ways than when we bring ourselves back here. Oh, wait, we live differently here. But on some level, we're called to be missionaries here. So many of those responses should affect how we pursue our employment, how we pursue our time, how we pursue our friendships, what we want to do with people, what type of church we want. All those type of questions should influence us here today. Let me end with this quote by J.I. Packer. He writes, The right to talk to another person about the Lord Jesus Christ has to be earned, and you earn it by convincing him that you're his friend and really care about him. And therefore, the indiscriminate buttonholing, the intrusive barging into the privacy of other people's souls, the thick-skinned insistence on expounding the things of God to reluctant strangers who are longing to get away, these modes of behavior should be written off as a travesty of personal evangelism. Impersonal evangelism would be a better name for them. The truth is that real personal evangelism is very costly just because it demands of us a really personal relationship with the other person. We have to give ourselves an honest friendship to people. If ever our relationship with them is to reach the point at which we are justified in choosing to talk to them about Christ and can speak to them about their own spiritual needs without being either discourteous or offensive. If you wish to do personal evangelism then, and I hope you do, you ought to, pray for the gift of friendship. A genuine friendliness is in any case a prime mark of a man who is learning to love his neighbor as himself. And so I wanted to end there as we did last week. The goal here is not that we have this like extra part of our life evangelism. This is all flowing that we want to love God and love people. And if we love God, then we want to tell people about him. And if we love people, then we want to get to know them and want them to know the greatest thing in the world too that's god himself well that concludes there's more coffee and donuts uh if you have comments questions feel free to throw those up here now if not we'll break all right enjoy